Perform this on demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Pat Gray. Religion. Religion. Speech. Speech. Press. Press. Right to assemble. Assemble. Petition now, the government. Get the t- yeah, you got it. Yeah, what do I win? Yeah, what do I get? Yeah, you got it. What, what, um, Alex, what do I win? Um, you win a brand new 2018 Cadillac Seville door handle screw. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. On the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Always an honor to be with you. If you're coming back for another week, thank you. I hope uh, you'll continue to uh, find a place uh, to quench that thirst for information, for discussion, for conversation about the issues you just don't hear anywhere else, about national security, foreign policy, the strategy against global jihad, and that voice from an American Muslim who is a patriot first and who believes that it is our responsibility as Muslims to reform against the ideas that are the root cause of radical Islam, not just the terrorism, which is the tactic, but the ideology. And on Reform This, you and I together address these things and address the issues of free speech, equality, freedom of religion, American patriotism, nationalism, national security against Islamic governments. These are all things that I address week to week, and this week is no different. First, I want to wish my fellow Muslims a Eid Mubarak, which means in Arabic a blessed holiday. And the Eid, the holiday that we had this week, was Al-Adha. Al-Adha, Eid Al-Adha is the Eid Kbir, or the big holiday. As Muslims really only have two holidays on our calendar, the Eid al-Fitr, which is right after the holiday of, right after the month of Ramadan, the ninth month on the Islamic calendar, equivalent to September. For us in Islam, that month is a month of fasting, and the first month of the first day of the tenth month is Eid al-Fitr. Eid al-Adha is the tenth day of the twelfth month. It is the holiday of the sacrifice, Adha meaning sacrifice. And it really is about the story of Abraham. And we've talked about that here on this program before in previous holidays. So I'm not going to get too much into the weeds of Ismail and Isaac and uh, that whole uh, debate between tribes and uh, which scripture applies, the Old Testament or the Quranic interpretation. But I always like to remind folks that we think of the Prophet Muhammad as being the primary figure in Islam, and certainly when it comes to the message of the Qur'an, we believe that he recited it, he was given it through the angel Gabriel, and that is the only miracle that is attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. But, yet, the biggest holiday in our calendar is about Abraham, is about his test of his will, in which he was unbelievable. And, and again, for me, it's always one of the toughest stories to believe that God would do such a thing, which is to 
test the belief of his messenger, Abraham, by asking him to sacrifice through a beheading to sacrifice his son, which is just a, a, a you know, um, unbelievable story. And, you know, for myself as, as a believer who believes that reformation in Islam is going to come from shifting the victimization, shifting the hell and brimstone into love, into passion, similar to how other faiths went through reformation and accentuating love and peripheralizing discontent, peripheralizing sin, peripheralizing the role of God as judger rather than as judge rather than omnipotent, omniscient, and friend. And yet, the holiday of the sacrifice reminds us that at the core of our faith, I believe, as a Muslim, is belief in God, that he tested Abraham. He did not allow him ultimately to kill his son, but he only stopped it after he knew he was going to do it. Now, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in the Islamic story of Abraham, then you'll see that as a ritualistic cultic behavior uh, that is bizarre. And yes, certainly all of the things in faith can become bizarre when broken down to their most granular nature, be it prayer and prostration, be it supplication and asking for blessings, holding our hands open for blessings from the sky, if you will. All these things that we do in prayer to God, the Almighty, can be looked upon as bizarre for those who don't believe, and they're free to do that. Uh, this year, more than any other, I saw a lot on the internet about criticism about the the violent nature of sacrifice and how many goats and sheep are killed in sacrifice on Eid al-Adha. And Muslims believe that obviously instead of his son, God replaced his son with a lamb and or a ram and the head was cut off and from then there's a ritualistic zabiha as it's called in Arabic which is a religious way of slaughtering animals for eating and for example if you can't fast in Ramadan you're asked to donate a meal equivalent to one lamb a night if you can afford it and there are many examples uh, at the birth of a, of a child. A, a lamb is sacrificed and then eaten as a recognition of the sacrifice and belief in God and the bringing of that life. Now, I totally understand, I totally respect those who view that ritualistic behavior as being cruel towards animals. I, I have no argument, especially with those who are vegetarians, and do not eat meat and see that as cruel and inhumane and perhaps that is an advance of culture i'm not a vegetarian and i'm not going to get into the debate if you will that exists today between the vegans and the folks who are carnivores and eat meat but in this debate there are those who do eat meat but yet see the ritualistic slaughter in a zabiha method in which the neck is cut and the whole process can be done appropriately within a fraction of a few seconds, a second or so, 
So the amount of suffering is there, but it's minuscule. And yet they particularly separate out Islamic ritualistic killing, slaughter for eating. You can only kill an animal for the purpose of eating, not just for sport or whatever it might be. Uh, that is one of, I believe, the interpretations of Islam that I was taught that just recreational killing of animals is not prohibited, is not permitted, or halal, which is the other word for today. I wanted to make sure, you know, we do a word every week, and today's word is halal. I talk about zabiha, which is ritualistic killing for eating, um, saying the word of God, the name of God at the time of killing is zabiha. Halal is that meat that food which you can eat, you're permitted. So not all food that's halal is done by zibiha. So, for example, fish are not killed through beheading. They're simply killed in a normal way, taken out of water, and then they die. And that is still halal for a Muslim. It is permissible to eat. So halal means permissible according to the teachings or your interpretation of your theology. It's permissible. The opposite of halal in Arabic is haram or forbidden. So the tons of Islamist books about what should be permitted or forbidden kosher. There's probably a better way to say that than the more articulate Hebrew, but you know what I mean. So my problem with those folks who have a problem with the Islamic ritual. Yes, you may find millions of Muslims who committed in a grotesque way and are just third world uh, uh, barbarians when it comes to committing the ritualistic zabiha or the, the, the killing of the animal for Eid al-Adha. But it's one thing if you're a vegan saying that, and I totally agree, and it's another thing to disagree and then that stunned animal is then slaughtered so the method of the slaughter in the west we're, we're talking an argument of seconds and the amount of suffering that might differ and you can look at the religious dogma as far as having a stunning that happens in which that might perhaps be more compassionate and yes we can make an argument that if you want to slit the hairs that the method of sacrifice or the Eid al-Adha, the, the Zabiha, the method of killing the meat is far more medieval to be done by a knife without stunning beforehand, then okay, we can have that debate. But to say that somehow there is a way to kill animals unless you're doing injection by lethal injection um, or, you know, some type of gassing that is done sometimes, uh, you know, that would appear to be more compassionate. Uh, but at the end of the day, I do think that there are so many, many other things in our faith that need reform that I talk about every time that I, I do think that focusing in. Now, I have talked to you about, I think her name is Fatima Marnout, who was put in jail in Egypt for disagreeing with the method and calling it barbaric. And I don't know, I'm not Egyptian. I've never been in, uh, in Egypt other than a few days uh, on, on diplomatic work uh, with the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom. But perhaps there it's, it's done horrifically. I don't, I don't know. And yet it's called Islamic Zabiha. I, I don't know. 
But to her credit, she was courageous. She stood up for a, a, a disbelief in the method of any type of sacrifice. And for that opinion, she was placed in jail for months. That she disagreed with a central process of traditional practice of the faith, which is the most important holiday. So to me, that needs reform, which is the way she was treated, which is a society that's incapable of having rational, free debates of disagreement and interpretation or practice, and that we should be able to have variants of practices and be rational and say, well, not to outlaw the entire sacrifice, but it needs to be done in a humane way that is minimally different compared to the other methods in which meat are killed animals are killed for meat in a humane way. So as long as it's done humanely and the suffering is limited to a few seconds, I think that that's appropriate. That's my opinion. We should be able to have rational debates, but for those who are put in jail, those who are punished, who are tortured for those beliefs, for disagreeing, for being vegans, for for uh, expressing their horror, I will defend you to the last breath. That, that our people, that um, whether it's the governments or, or especially fellow Muslims, do not ostracize you for that opinion because when it comes to the prioritization of the things that we need to reform, there are so many more things, so far more important to me than to make a stand on sacrifice. But to the Eid al-Adha, to my friends, Eid Mubarak, I hope you enjoyed the time with your family this year. I uh, was pleased to know and tell you that there was no sermons against uh, focused on victimization and uh, against me particular, but rather simply about family, about values that uh, in the sermons that I attended, in the sermon that I attended, uh, it was far more traditional and value-oriented rather than political. When we come back, we'll talk about ISIS, they're back. This is Zudi Jasser. Reform this. Reform this with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. Chicago also allows non-citizens voting in school elections. So all across the country, liberal enclaves are considering it. This is a big push. This has happened in the past, but right now, because of Trump, huge push to give non-citizens in many cases illegals the right to vote the morning blaze weekday morning six to nine eastern on the blaze radio network reaching the fault lines of today this is reform this with dr zudi jasser on the blaze radio network this is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. A lot to talk about this week. The one thing I wanted to start with when it comes to specific issues is ISIS. For a long time, there was high suspicion that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, the most grotesque, barbaric, vicious militant organization of radical Muslims on the planet— which he leads and and is the chief radicalizer of, he just released an audio 
an audio 55 minutes in which he called on Muslims to wage jihad. He released earlier this week on August 22nd. And he also released a telegram message on the occasion of the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Adha that you and I just talked about. And he had not released anything since last September. And, you know, you think, is he a guy who just likes his holidays or, or, or what is it? And since he's talked, ISIS has lost the vast majority of its territory. So he said during his 55 minutes of BS, those who forget their religion, patience, jihad against their enemies, and their certainty in the Creator's promise lose and are disgraced. But when they hold on to it, they are mighty and victorious, even if after a certain time, he added. Now, some had thought he was still alive. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights had claimed that it had confirmed information that he had been killed, citing several high-level ISIS commanders. However, U.S. officials had been skeptical, and now rightly so. The audio has been confirmed to be that of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And it appears in the audio he goes on to not only tell Muslims that they should commit jihad, that they should be lone wolves, they should be separate and not work together, but ultimately sow chaos and commit acts of violence against anyone possible. So, to me, this is not only just to wake all of you up that the threat of ISIS will be there, they will regrow like a hydra, and this hydra is still the primary head, the original head that has not even been killed. And I'll remind you, actually, just a, a small footnote. If you really think that Assad was somebody that really wanted ISIS dead, you don't think that this guy could have been killed? He found his way to kill 600,000 Syrians, 10 million displaced. You couldn't go to Raqqa and the command and control center of ISIS and find this piece of human feces? It just wasn't on their agenda. The agenda, as we talked last week, is Idlib is still bracing itself for what happened to Aleppo to happen to them over the next few weeks. But we heard the Russian defense ministry had thought that Baghdadi was in their airstrike in, in which they had struck Raqqa and were taking credit for months for having killed Baghdadi. And now we learn that he wasn't killed in their airstrike. He's still giving audios and pitches for radicalization for Muslims to be part of the jihad. So I ask my fellow Muslims on this Eid, as we finish our Eid and we go on to another year, this is the 10th. This was the 10th day of the 12th month. Muslims to the millions completed their hajj, their pilgrimage, during these 10 days in Saudi Arabia. What is your jihad? Are you having a jihad against jihad? I've talked about that phrase that I've used. Other reformers, I've, I've heard Tariq Fatah and others use that. And what is it? Are we going to let these calls for jihad go unanswered? Now, on the one hand, I sort of read this and I see all over Twitter the audio from memory on, and I ask myself, maybe it's better that they ignore it. Why are they amplifying this message? 
But then I asked myself, the people reading this are 99.99%, not the ones that would be listening to, to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Rather, it would educate them that in Telegram, on YouTube, where this audio goes, in the channels, on the boards, on the WhatsApp message connections, wherever it might be where ISIS is communicating with one another. Through the encrypted communication channels with keys on Telegram, that ultimately that's who's going to be hearing this and then become a threat. And I hope and pray that our homeland security and European security from the West and others are paying close attention to this and anyone who listens and links on to this audio that is a especially a profiled young man, 15 to 40 or so, that is on one of the tens of thousands of lists of known wolves, not lone wolves, but known wolves. So I think this should wake us up as Muslims. What are we doing? Are we teaching our youth that, no, he is the person who is the enemy of not only America, but of Islam, his organization, his verbiage, this collectivizations of Muslims in the land of Islam, Darul Islam versus the land of war, Darul Harb, that he looks at the place, the world, before him and those in which the West lives as being his enemy. And you can disregard Baghdadi as being a, a Hitler-esque incarnation of radical Islam, but at the end of the day, it's not just him that is transmitting this audio that is ultimately pushing the clicks of Islamists that listen to his sermon and are attracted, are magnetically pulled into a feeling of, of, of a sense of brotherhood, Muslim Brotherhood, capital B, with the ideas that he says. And yet you hear, oh no, the brotherhood's different. Well, listen to his speech and then try to separate it from the sermons of Hamas imams in Gaza or the West Bank or, or radical Islamists in Egypt who bombed churches, who tortured Christians, who tortured Coptic Christians, or in Saudi Arabia who killed Shia, who killed uh, other minorities, or in Iran. Listen to the words that he said. It's not just peculiar to ISIS. This is a draconian black and white interpretation of Islam that is anti-Western, anti-Israel, anti-Semitic and runs against the secular national state and thus ISIS. So while he may not have used the word ISIS or in Arabic Daesh, Dawlat al-Islamiyyah, Bisham, the state of Islam in the area of Sham, which is the Levant, or ISIL as it used to be called, and ISIS is what it means. He rarely referred to it as that in this 55-minute audio, but at the end of the day, that's what it's about, creating Islamic sense of statehood, neo-national, Islamo-nationalism, if you will, the sense that the state the legal system is connected to Muslim identity. So the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization because it believes in a militant Islamic state. Erdogan's language 
that he's been using in the AKP is not that different. He might be more toned. He might be wearing a suit. He might be a head of a government that's part of NATO. But his verbiage as he reaches to Russia, as he reaches to China now, his verbiage against the West is very similar to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So, my American Muslim friends, my Muslim friends all over the world, if you believe that Baghdadi is a nutcase and not just a hardcore Islamist, then you're missing the boat. You're in denial. But if you believe he's an ideological Islamist who is a militant and that most Muslim, most Islamists are on the pathway towards having some sympathy towards a lot of what he said in his speech and feeling that they're at war with the West, that is a wake-up call. We have a lot of work to do. We need to declare jihad against this. Where are the Muslim organizations expressing themselves this week that he is the primary enemy of our faith? That is the ideas of anyone who has sympathy to, to these calls for jihad against the West. That if you watch Palestinian jihad TV and Hamas, it has exactly the same things coming out of it. If you watch Saudi television, now Saudis are trying to clean up a lot of that in the last year. But their anti-Semitic texts, their, their interpretations are rife for a quick radicalization when the rains come off from MBS and his father. So, the jihadists have been losing quite a bit. The number of ISIS fighters remaining is somewhere between twenty and 30,000, according to a uh, UN report. But at the end of the day, any jihadists from al-Shabaab in Somalia to the Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia to the Khomeinists, regardless of whether they're Sunni or Shia, jihadists feed off one another. Hezbollah helped funds Hamas. Iran helped funds Hamas. Sunni funds Shia. Shia funds Sunni. The Islamism, the radical Islamism is the same sense of the domination of the Islamic State. And we need to fight that. We need to use every opportunity to exemplify that the sermons that we hear are not just military problems, but they are social, intellectual, theological problems that we need to defeat online and marginalize them. So ask your local Muslim organizations, why aren't you posting something against Baghdadi's latest audio. Why aren't you using that as a teaching moment? I don't know. We should ask. More tough love, less anesthesia. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. The Glenn Beck Program. Media. Why do we have Donald Trump? In that eight-year period, you called half of America racist. You didn't even take the time to listen. You didn't give us that respect. You instead said, we are plotting against this government. We love the Constitution of the United States of America. We do not like the government and the way it is enacting those things because it is corrupt. And you know it is. The Glenn Beck Program. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. 
You know, this segment is, is something I've been waiting to talk to all of you about for a while. We talk about it sort of in passing occasionally, and there have been a number of issues that deal with this. But with all of the discussion of social media and how to filter against hate and radicalism and all that, the role of Facebook, as we saw testimony from Zuckerberg, and now we're seeing uh, uh, what's happening to Alex Jones, etc., the country is having a national conversation about the limits of free speech on social media, on the internet, etc. And the, and the feeling is that when all boils down to it, at the end of the day, the solution should come from government. And as a conservative, I'm naturally repelled by anybody who believes that the solution to anything should come from government, except maybe national security, uh, uh, protecting us from foreign invasion, and infrastructure and a few other things that uh, perhaps, and we can talk about what's the limit of conservatism versus libertarianism, but at the end of the day, the, the, the cornerstone of a free society is free speech. The cornerstone. You cannot test your freedom unless you have a laboratory in which to test it, and that laboratory is free speech. So, in this segment, on this program today, I've heard it a few places, but to me, I want all of you, if you agree with me, to start pushing that we have an internet declaration, a internet bill of rights, or better described, an internet free speech bill of rights. An internet free speech bill of rights. What do I mean by that? I, I don't actually know. We need to have a conversation about that. But I know what it isn't. It isn't an unleashed Facebook where they filter only conservatives and they start doing this uh, shadow banning of conservatives where we get marginalized as conservatives and the liberals are left to have free reign while they use the SPLC method of designating hate groups of whatever they think is hate, while Muslim reformers like Majid Nawaz, who was just handed uh, over $3 million because he had the courage to sue SPLC for calling him an Islamophobe and a bigot against Muslims when, in fact, he was doing the work at Quilliam and elsewhere because he loved his faith. So he called them on it, and they settled because they realized it would be a joke to try to defend that in court. And now, hopefully, there's going to be a lot more lawsuits against the SPLC and their hundreds of millions of dollars as they sit on. And now we see the Trump administration appropriately marginalizing the SPLC's influence on the FBI. The FBI is officially now, the Department of Justice is officially delisted. The SPLC is having influence on which groups are designated hate groups or not. And the DOJ has been for too long using the SPLC, which has compromised leftist propaganda in many ways for helping them figure out which groups are hate groups and which groups are not. So I look at it like consumer food. You look at the labels, you see the little heart sign, you see things that uh, uh, FDA approved, whatever it might be. There's government involved in some of that, obviously. But at the end of the day, there's free market method of consumers figuring out what's good food and what's not. You look for certain certifications, you look for other things, but uh, the government might make sure there's USDA and other things 
that might be a minimum standard, and it does so right now on the internet by selling URLs, by controlling uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, pathways, if you will. Uh, but I'm not keen, as big as Facebook is, you can make an argument that these huge social media organizations that are now the wealthiest organizations on the planet are no longer simply private companies per se. They are private companies, but they're no longer accountable only like my business is. But there's some accountability to access for the public. So it's like when you have two power companies in town and that's it. Access for the public has to be a priority also for individuals not to be marginalized from even existing in that fabric because of monopolies. So I do think there's a role of government to protecting us from monopolies. And the monopoly of speech is a monopoly. So I'm still a hardcore believer in Brandenburg versus Ohio. The old Supreme Court case decided in the mid-20th century around 1969 that basically said that imminent threats to the lives, violence calling, public violence, public speech calling for public violence against another individual was not protected speech because that was incitement to immediately commit violence. Tertiary incitement which you might say that, well, an idea might lead to violence. That doesn't count. It has to be an imminent threat. I look at the same thing, for example, psychiatrists. Another Supreme Court case, I think in the early 70s, said psychiatrists no longer had to abide by the confidentiality of doctor-patient relationship when their patient told them directly they had a plan and they were going to leave their office to commit a crime of murder. And once they knew that, they had an obligation to protect the other person. But short of that, patients contract, if patients do other things, the inviolability of doctor-patient relationship is necessary in order to preserve the sanctity so that we can treat our patients. Same thing for journalists who have often gone to jail in order to protect their sources. Because once we believe that their sources are going to be re revealed, no longer, no longer will their speech be something they will share with a journalist if they feel the journalist will no, will no longer respect the anonymity of who they are. So all these things are the same issue. There is a limit, but it should be a, a rare, rare exception in which that limit is crossed for the free speech or for the confidentiality, all of the same thing, which is the protection of speech. So at the end of the day, if we're going to have an Internet free speech bill of rights, we need to begin to talk about it. What is that? What are the details of what's protected and what's not? And I'm sorry, as much as I can't stand Alex Jones, you know, hats off to Bill Maher last week, who basically said, you know what, liberals, you might not like Alex Jones. And I don't know how Alex Jones got labeled as a right right wing guy. He's just a nutcase. But bottom line is, is. It is the wacky individuals in society who test the limits of our speech. No different than what is the limits of pornography. Those who, who dress in a way that's offensive to most are the ones that test 
the limits of government's intervention in what you wear and what you don't wear. And I prefer the American standard from the draconian medieval standard that's misogynistic in Iran that hits the ankles of women whose skirts are too short. So speech is not about protecting those of us who apologize for almost cursing. No, it's about protecting the speech of those who truly can be offensive to many of us. Those are the people whose speech we should die for. Because once their speech becomes unprotected, then they're coming after our speech next when they have the power. When they have the power. And Bill Maher was right when he talked about Alex Jones. Alex Jones might be nutty, but it is one thing to say that he should be shut down and not given a platform. And it's another to say that why don't you just marginalize him and ignore him, turn the channel. So, the details of what's on that internet free speech, internet freedom bill of rights, what's on that? We need to have a national conversation. But I'm here to tell you as a Muslim reformer, as an American Muslim who who believes in our Constitution, I can tell you that the capsule of solution, that uranium capsule that will solve the problem of radical Islam is free speech. In those countries, Saudi Arabia, Iran, reformers like myself are put in jail, not because they criticize the president, even though that's what they're doing there. They're told that they're criticizing Islam. Remember the first word I talked to you about last week was Islamophobia. They don't call it bigotry against Muslims because if that's what they called it in Saudi Arabia, it wouldn't make sense that a Muslim would be bigoted. But he's called an Islamophobe when he disagrees with the government because he is being exposed as a blasphemer as somebody who has ridiculed the court for the best um, purveyors of short video clips that gets ideas across, is having so much of their material and content removed from YouTube. Why? Because of supposedly complaints from viewers who say that it's offensive when they talk about moderate Muslims, when they talk about criticizing the left. It's bizarre. There needs to be a protection for those individuals. Does YouTube have a right? I've talked to you about... Uh, um, whether we should have removed all of Olaki's videos. Here's a guy who is enemy number one in the last century, last 20 years, declared war on the United States. I believe, yes, his videos that declared war that were militant jihadists should be removed. But if Olaki had videos that were part of his radicalization, just as Mein Kampf is still available, just as certain elements of Nazi ideology can still be learned about, removing things from public presence prevents us from repeating the mistakes of the past. Allows us to repeat it, and we're unable to prevent ourselves because we can't learn from the past anymore. So, listen, I know as much as I do about Olaki because I've watched how some of his videos are actually, I can see how Muslims get radicalized. He talks about spirituality, about coming to terms with God and the message, etc., etc., and then leads them into, oh, by the way, the West is hedonistic, and we should declare war on them, and killing civilians doesn't matter. Boom. That's the steps. That last part, yes, that should be removed. But all the other parts, there's a lot of disagreement with me about that. So we need an Internet Free Speech Bill of Rights. And that Bill of Rights, I think, should be applied. And if companies don't apply it, they should not get that certification 
And rather than leave it up to whatever the robotic Zuckerberg says at a hearing, we should have companies adhere to those Bill of Rights. And if they don't, then they should be ostracized and quickly abandoned. Not by governmental legislation, but by standard culture. And perhaps we can have on the periphery governmental legislation that contains it. Wonderful conversation, folks. This is what we need to be talking about when we look at free speech. And anti-jihad and the work against jihad is going to be on the front line of this as we see websites that uh, not only has the SPLC worked on getting things removed from YouTube and Facebook and delisted Alex Jones, delisted Jihad Watch, which recently uh, Tyler O'Neill reported in PJ Media that that uh, Jihad Watch had, uh, had its GoFundMe account uh, thefted. Uh, and shut down, unable to use credit cards. This is this is asinine and 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 idiotic, and is a slippery slope that will take with it the rest of free thinkers. I might disagree with a lot of the content about Islam that is put on a lot of websites, but the minute they start controlling what is put on there and calling that hate speech, that becomes no different than the Saudis. And what they do to free thinkers in their country, and they say, oh, that's not Islamic, and that's hate speech. The way we reformers get treated is often no different than the Saudis. By the left, and sometimes also by the right. So all these things need an internet free speech bill of rights. Join me in doing that, and we'll have more conversation about this. is Zudi Jasser on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Last segment, talked about a lot. I mentioned uh, a week or two ago about how Saudi Arabia had claimed that they were diversifying their economy by perhaps investing with Elon Musk. And now Musk got into a lot of hot water because of some possible SEC violations as he tweeted out the value of what he may be selling his stock for in order to take his public company private. And he basically is in the hot water, and I'm no way an economic legal expert on what he can and cannot say to a public for a publicly traded company. But a lot of the centers around a private investment firm, private investment fund, PIF, that is owned by the Saudis. And what I wanted to talk to you about is I can't tell you the amount of response I got from folks I thought were pretty rational on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere that thought that, well, the Saudis, yeah, they want their, they're worried about their economy. They, they want to liberalize. And why not invest in good things? So hold on a second. Hold on. There's a lot of profitable things out there they can do to diversify their economy. 
They've invested in Citibank. They've invested in schools. They've invested in in numbers of technology and, and computers, other things. But if you think that they are investing in electric cars in the preeminent company that is advancing the technology of electric cars, electric vehicles, and if you think they're doing that because of their need or desire to diversify their economy, then you really don't understand the way the Saudis work. The Saudis spent as much money as they did, not only to spread their ideas among Muslims to the mosques, but that investment led to leverage that prevented those mosques from speaking against the custodians of the holy mosque, the custodians of the grand mosque. Because if they did not permeate their tentacles, how else, by the way, would a two-bit royal family that would be worth nothing were it not for the fossil fuel, the oil under the ground, were it not for that uh, natural resource, that royal family has produced nothing when it comes to technology, brilliance, uh, or, or actual creativity or ingenuity for the Muslim world, for, or for the world, period. They are simply a byproduct of kleptocracy, kleptocratic control of billions and billions and billions upon fossil fuel from under their sand. So, Having said that, how did the OIC all of a sudden be basically controlled by Saudi Arabia? Part of it is branding because they are the direction to which we pray, the place in which Islam began. So the 56 countries, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, will bow and genuflect to the control of the Saudis, even though you take the militaries of Egypt the largest Arab country, 25 million Arabs in Saudi Arabia, 70 to 80 million in Egypt. You take the militaries of Iran, not Arabic, Farsi speaking, huge animus with Saudi Arabia, and yet the GCC has been able to balance that. You take the militaries of Pakistan, Indonesia, you get the drift. The number of Muslims in India itself, while they're a minority, are still in the hundreds of millions. Probably the largest Muslim country in the world, even though it's a minority, is India. So, having said that, yet their influence upon the OIC, the OIC is now based in Saudi Arabia, has been controlled by the Saudis for a while. Why? Because you look at Bosnian Islam, for example. The last 20 years has become more Wahhabized. Wahhabi Islam the, the fundamentals, draconian, black and white interpretation of Islam has become much, much more part of the fabric of what is European Bosnian Islam than it used to be. The most moderate Islamic interpretations globally came from that interface between Europe and the Middle East, or Europe and the Islamic world, if you will, and yet the Saudis have figured out how to radicalize them. And, and permeate a singular interpretation of Islam because of financing, because of influence. And they have spent 
invested in that leverage. So to get back to Elon Musk, he's looking for money. He wants independence from the public sector. He wants to be able to tweet whatever the heck he wants and not care. So what does he do? He reaches out to deep pockets that he feels will give him the freedom. But at the end of the day, make no mistake, we may not see the leverage that the Saudis want, but they realize, yes, they may diversify, and they're trying to get more technology in, and they may be trying to educate their people, but still 90% of their people, their citizens, are government employees. So unless they actually begin to have free markets where ingenuity is rewarded, where people can create things and own it and have property rights and women are treated equally, not just able to drive, but actually treated equally, they're going to continue to be an authoritarian state. That authoritarian state sees that their entire future is dependent upon fossil fuels. They may diversify it, but their entire future is so. As long as the world is addicted to oil, their future is safe. When the world is now no longer dependent on oil and is run by electricity, batteries, solar power, whatever alternative energies there may be, the Saudis become irrelevant. And they realize that. So what better way than on the one hand to claim that you want to diversify your economy, but on the other hand to begin to control it and have leverage, like they had leverage at Harvard and Georgetown, where their centers on Muslim-Christian understanding prevented any criticism of the Saudi state, any criticism of Wahhabi Islam, theocracy and Islamism, and they worked with their brotherhood for so long, and now, oh, they're saying, oh, we're stopping that. Well, reformation is not coming from the Saudi royal family or from their government. It's just window dressing. It's just a neo reformation, a modernization of kleptocracy and aristocracy and autocracy. They want leverage on the world's biggest threat to their influence in the oil market. That's what that's all about. So I'm surprised at the response I got on social media. I'm surprised that people aren't thinking about that. There's been some good pieces at Bloomberg and elsewhere, but it's been like one out of eight the others are about, oh, the great diversification, the sign of MBS's uh, change of his economy. <laughs> Excuse me while I throw up. Another interesting week at Reform This. It's been great to be with you. God bless you all. Again, an Eid Mubarak to my fellow Muslims. Hope you had a wonderful Eid holiday with your family. And looking forward to another great year. Here at Blaze Radio, this is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.